Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of Locked in Science. This is 30 minutes of science on your radio and my name is Claire and yes, we are still locked in science. We are acting under the uh, pseudonym, I guess you would call it, our um, nom de guerre, I don't know what you would call it, of Locked in Science rather than Lost in Science. We're sort of travelling incognito. (laughs) Or, or, or really not travelling incognito, we are stuck at home incognito. We are stuck <laughs> at home incognito. Love it. But wherever you are, we are glad to have you with us. And this week on the show, I am going to be talking about a different virus, the dengue virus, and some incredible new research that has come out about an Australian innovation that uses a bacteria that's present in other mosquito populations to, I guess, like the dengue mosquitoes being immune to the dengue virus. And some incredible research that has come out of Indonesia that shows just how unbelievably effective this technology is at bringing down dengue fever. So, yeah, they've seen like huge reductions in the amount of dengue fever in those areas. So, um, yeah, very exciting news. Um, On that, yeah, on that particular viral front. Stu, what do you have for us? Well, I am digging myself a hole. I'm going underground. Oh, you're going deeper underground. Deeper underground. Uh, I'm going to have a look at earthworms. Oh. Great, and the reason being that I was I was reading about earthworms, and I was, um, you know, I was I was doing some work in the garden, thinking about earthworms, and and I I got to wondering, are these earthworms indigenous to Australia? Yeah, are, are they, they invasive? exotic species? Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of, I mean, European honeybees are a very important part of agriculture, but they are an invasive species. Um, Maybe the worms are as well. Yeah, well, and that's what I set out to find out. And I found out some very interesting stuff, which is a a tiny bit scary as well. So (laughs) who would have thought that earthworms could be uh, an existential threat? (laughs) (laughs) This is also extremely prescient as I am in the middle of reading Dune, um, so every time I think about earthworms, I think about giant sandworms. Look, less to do with spice, this story, and lots to do with ice. <laughs> what? Yeah, weird, weird, weird twists and turns. Love it. I, I, I'm very excited for this earthworm story. So, yeah, some great local content here for you for the next 30 minutes. Okay, on with the show. As our listeners might know, I have a background in horticultural science and I'm also a keen gardener. 
I grow all sorts of things in my backyard. I'm often digging around in the soil, planting things. And I know, Claire, you have a veggie patch at your place. I do have a veggie patch. Care of used you. Thank you. You know, during <laughs> lockdown one, you sent me a whole bunch of seeds, which I planted. And thanks to you. And of course, thanks to the worms for keeping well, the soil aerated and fertilized. That's exactly right. And, you know, if you do dig around in the soil, especially in cultivated soil, you will find earthworms. You find lots of them in garden soils. And they are one of the good guys in the garden, um, especially in high productivity food gardens and in agricultural soils. There's something that we want to encourage in those situations. Now, in Australia, there are over a thousand indigenous species of earthworms. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, a huge abundance of, like, there's something like 20 different families of earthworms in Australia. Whoa. Um, And on top of that, there's another 80 species introduced to Australia that were brought by Europeans, um, some deliberately, some accidentally. But the reason gardeners and farmers tend to like earthworms is that they feed on dead organic material they break it down and release nutrients that plants can then readily absorb and it helps them to grow which is great so most of the earthworms in australia are what are known as endogeic worms so endo means outside and geic refers to the earth so basically what that means is they live above the soil in the layers of organic matter on the surface of the soil. So they don't burrow down deep into the soil at all. Right. For for the most part. So there's other species of worms are called anisic worms. And that means these worms feed on the surface litter, but they actually take it down into the soil in vertical burrows. Right. So they, they alter the soil profile as they do it and they mix up the organic matter with the deeper soil and they aerate the soil by having these burrows going down into the soil as well. There's also epigeic species, which live mm-hmm. in the top layers of soil, and they mainly feed on microbes rather than plant material and stuff, but they're still an important part of the ecosystems where they exist. So this is all a good thing, and as I said, farms and gardens where high productivity is your goal, these activities are a big benefit to gardeners and farmers, and we try and encourage them in that space, I guess. Uh, But obviously not all the world is farmland or gardens. There are still, luckily, large parts of the world that are still functional, indigenous, endemic ecosystems. And in some places, the earthworm does not belong. So one of the places I found out uh, was the state of Minnesota in the United States. There are no indigenous earthworms of any kind in Minnesota. Right. So the whole ecosystem has evolved without, I guess, an earthworm endemic to that, that area. Yeah. So. Right. How, do, how does that affect the, the soil profile and the sort of fertility well, of the soil? Especially in, in North America and Minnesota's right, right up the top of, of the U.S. And they were, they were inundated with glaciers for hundreds of thousands of years and those glaciers receded what they did was they basically made 
a whole lot of fresh soil as they receded, grinding the, the bedrock into fresh, nutrient-rich soil. So the soils are actually pretty good, but the soil profiles are odd. They're not what you'd find in places that didn't have glaciers. For example, in Australia, we didn't get any glaciers. Um, so the soils are, are different, um, but the plants that came in after the glaciers receded, um, and the glaciers also wiped out whatever earthworms there would have been there because they just ground all the soil off and pushed it off into other parts of the country. Um, so there was no earthworms there. So all of the ecosystems that got established after the glaciers receded had no earthworms. Ah. So since European settlement, though, earthworms have been deliberately introduced to improve farm soils and increase productivity. They've also brought them in in plants and soils and machinery that have been imported for various reasons. Right. And so there's all these earthworms there. But in those native forests in Minnesota, the earthworms have actually altered the ecology to the point where many of the understory plants in the forest have disappeared and some are even endangered because the earthworms have altered the soil profile so much that these plants can't grow naturally anymore. So they've got to, uh, they've they've got literal signs everywhere saying, don't dump your worms in in the soil. And they've got a big big program to try and get people, you know, that that earthworms in this area are not a good thing and they, and they are actually invasive. I never really thought about earthworms as being, an introduced species or an invasive species before, um, and I guess that's just my, you know, lack of imagination. Um, but is is this an issue anywhere else in the world as well, or is this um, specific to Minnesota and it, it's sort of being an issue? Well, it, it sort of is, but one of, so one of the things that kept them somewhat under control is that they've got really harsh, cold winters in Minnesota. Mm. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Fargo. So that's, you know, it, it's very cold, and a lot of the species, they don't spread very far because they can't deal with the, the ridiculously cold winters that they, that they endure up there. So they do sort of, that does limit their spread. But in other places, such as the Arctic parts of Scandinavian countries, some species have managed to survive the harsh conditions and establish in soils where they have not existed before. So you would think, you know, Scandinavia, northern parts of Europe, surely there's earthworms in those soils. Mm. But apparently there, there wasn't until relatively recently. So some research I found from 2017 into the spread of earthworms in Scandinavia looked at earthworm populations in different locations where they could date particular human activity. So the older sites they examined were used by the indigenous Sumi people who were reindeer herders. They used to herd and milk reindeer and there's these sites where they know that they were they were milking their reindeer in these particular sort of open fields. And they looked at those sites and they went, No, there's there's no established earthworm populations there. So that wasn't that wasn't the time that they date back to. Um, so that, that far back, there was no earthworms there. But more recent sites from the 1850s onwards where people had unsuccessfully tried to set up agricultural settlements in Arctic areas showed, estab- uh, showed evidence of established earthworm populations. So in those locations, the, earth, uh, the, the soils have been altered by the earthworms, especially those vertical burrowing anisic species. Right. And the soils have altered 
they've altered the organic matter levels in the soil and the distribution of organic matter through the soil and also altered the pH. So mm. the changes the earthworms have made to the soil have begun to affect the plant life and also the composition of the soil microflora, mm. which is your microbes, your bacteria and your fungi and all those things. Yeah. And they are tending to favour taller, shrubby plants rather than low-growing ground covers and grasses. And these taller, shrubby plants are tall enough to poke through the annual snow cover. So they've got deeper soils. The plants can have deeper roots, so they grow taller. Mm -hmm. And now they're above the snow cover. And that leads Uh, to faster melting of the snow. Yeah. Because of our old friend, the albedo effect, the plants are darker and they absorb heat and they warm up quicker than white reflective snow in the springtime. So the the snow melts quicker, the thaw happens earlier, and different plants are establishing in these areas as a result of the earthworms making it easier for different plants to grow. So that's a that, real that's a real domino effect, isn't it? That's like it really is, and it's it is you know it's a really good example of how a single species can completely alter an ecosystem where everything sort of works in a certain way and in in you know in time with the seasons and and things that happen sort of pretty regularly every year introduce a single new species into the area and you completely change that seasonal progression and potentially change the entire ecosystem as a result um so that that was you know some pretty uh I guess worrying research from that part of the world that you know you don't as you say you don't think of earthworms as being an invasive species and what they found in Minnesota was that they probably only move about half a mile every century that they're not you know rapidly invading but the problem is it's people moving Mm, them on purpose that's causing the issues and that's really what they've got to sort of focus on because you know they they don't they don't have a really great distribution method Mm. of their own they aren't like cane toads you know no or any you know rabbits or whatever yeah they don't don't move fast they move very slowly slow it's the humans that move quite quickly that's that's exactly the problem so you know i just thought it was interesting to find out that the humble earthworm can be an invasive species and have a major impact on ecology. Um, just another example of unintended consequences worming their way into the best laid plans. Oh, and also a public service announcement, don't dump your worms. Don't dump your worms. Leave them in your raised garden bed. While the world is focusing very much on COVID-19 and there has been some huge news in science this week that an Australian innovation that stops the transmission and spread of the virus that causes dengue fever. In fact, it's a study that was done in the Indonesian city of Yogyakarta. It was done over uh, four years and the researchers have found that rates of dengue fever uh, in the treatment area dropped by around 77% compared to places that did not have this treatment. Wow, that's a huge drop. 
it's a huge drop. And epidemiologists who, I guess, you know, we have been exposed to enough epidemiologists over the last eight months that we know, you know, they're not people who are totally over-enthusiastic and um, sensationalist, but they have called this a very a staggering result. <laughs> so I do, you know, they're sparing with their praise, but I think um, there's a bit of praise out there for this result. Yeah, it certainly, certainly deserves the... Uh exuberant uh, descriptions, I That's think. right, yeah. So to go back a bit to how this technology works to stop dengue fever transmission in mosquitoes, because it's, it's fascinating on many levels, and I think we've talked about it before on Lost in Science. I, I may have mentioned it at some point. Yeah, I mean, it's, okay. it is it is It is one of the big problem viruses that, you know, before this year was taking yeah. up a lot of time, people yeah. trying to reduce the spread yeah, I mean dengue fever. Yeah, it's it's a huge disease. It, I mean, it infects nearly four hundred million people annually. Uh, I can't even I can't even imagine. It's, it's like it's like an eighth of the world's population every year. Gets yeah, yeah, and and although you know you don't have a lot of deaths, you've got maybe twenty five thousand deaths, which is you know a lot, but it's not as many as say malaria or something like that. But you know a lot of people lose their livelihoods, and it's in Asia and the Pacific and Latin America, um, and it's a nasty disease to get. Um, it's known as break bone fever. It can hu- it can cause incredible muscular pain, soaring fevers, chronic lethargy, and devastatingly, it gets worse the more often you get it. So if you get it, you know this year and the next year it's going to affect you worse and increase your chances of getting this thing called um, dengue hemorrhagic fever. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, as, as much as people say, oh, the death rate's not really that high, it's not just the death rate that is that is a problem with things yeah. like this. It's, it's the lost hours of work and, as you say, the loss of livelihood. If you can't work in a lot, yeah. of, in a lot of countries, if you can't go to work, you don't get any, you know sick pay or anything like that it's it's absolutely. a real issue for people in in less developed parts of the world yeah absolutely and it disproportionately affects people in developing countries because that's where um this mosquito uh that it is carried by that's that's where that mosquito lives it lives around um sort of lives in the tropics and it has a tendency to exist and live in you know really small areas of water so it's not like your big lakes and whatnot it's your it's the bottom of your pot plants you know that's where the dengue mosquito will breed so it's quite prevalent in cities and so you get a lot of people getting it and in highly sort of densely populated areas yes so this virus is transmitted through a mosquito the mosquito is actually called the Aedes aegypti Um, which I think is a pretty cool Latin name for a mosquito. Now, back in the 1990s, microbiologist and Monash University professor Scott O'Neill and his team were working on um, a bacteria that's present in most, you know, over 50% of insect populations. It's called the Wolbachia bacteria. And they were sort of just messing around with this bacteria, as you do. I'm sure it was more technical than that. But they found that if you infect the Aedes aegypti mosquito, the one that um, can transmit dengue fever if you inject it with this wolbachia bacteria then the mosquitoes no longer transmit the dengue virus for some reason they don't exactly know why but they found that it did 
So did they 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 can't figure out what's what what it's doing to the virus? They're not exactly sure of the pathway or what sort of like what exactly is going on, but they haven't let that stop them, you know, work out exactly what can be applied and how they can apply this research to sort of, you know, helping helping humans along the way. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, sometimes you don't have to understand how something works to know that it works. Totally. But they also figured out a way that um, they could get the mosquitoes to pass the bacteria down to their offspring so it would be sort of in- inherited pretty much, an inherited bacteria, which is even doubly amazing. So what they had then was, I guess, a potential to stop the spread of dengue virus by making these mosquito vectors unable to carry the virus. And you can imagine the next step that they would do once, you know, all the lab results came in was to rear up, get a whole lot of mosquitoes together, a whole lot of these 80s Egypti mosquitoes that had this special bacteria, this Wolbachia in them, and then in huge numbers release them out into the wild to breed with the other mosquitoes and hopefully create a population of these 80s Egypti mosquitoes that were uh, immune to carrying dengue fever and therefore protecting humans. I guess on, on the on the flip side of that, it's probably not something they brought up at, you know, dinner parties or cocktail. <laughs> but, oh, what do you do for them? Oh, we're breeding up heaps and heaps of mosquitoes, and then we're going to release them into the wild. I know, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's counterintuitive. Can you imagine, you know, how much community engagement would have had to been done to sort of like get everyone on side that's like, what do you mean you're releasing more mosquitoes to try and help us with this mosquito-borne disease? But, you know, that's a testament to the community engagement team out there that they managed mm. to, to to do it um, because that's that's exactly what they started doing. They First they started releasing the mosquitoes into Townsville and Cairns um, where there had been previous outbreaks of dengue and they found that... Wolbachia spread very well through the local mosquito population. It, it, it travelled quickly and efficiently. But in this study, so even though the dengue rates plummeted after um, all of these mosquitoes were released and just by and by, 4 million mosquitoes were released, which is not a small number of mosquitoes to breed up in a lab. Um, what didn't happen in this study was they didn't have control areas they they did mosquito releases everywhere yeah which brings us to the research that's coming out of Jogjakarta now uh, co-led by Adi Utorini who's a public health researcher at the University of Gajamada in Indonesia uh, now these researchers um, led by Adi divided the city which is nearly like half a million people into 24 clusters And then they randomly selected um, 12 of these clusters for mosquito release and 12 as controls. And um, working with clinics all around Jogjakarta, the researchers then identified 400 confirmed cases of dengue among thousands of people who showed up with acute fevers and compared where people with dengue Um, had been in the previous two weeks so they could determine whether they'd been in an area where mosquitoes had been released or not so this was a double blind study so they didn't they didn't know you know where the control and the treatment areas were and it was unblinded 
Um, this study was unblinded in June, which was a few months earlier than scheduled because, of course, coronavirus. But what they saw was that there was a 77% reduction in dengue cases in the areas that had the mosquitoes that were infected with the Wolbachia. So this roughly translates to people in treatment areas being four times less likely to develop dengue fever, which is um, pretty good odds, I guess. You know, you sort of want to be in one of those areas, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. But it's also, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in future seasons as well. Mm. As these these Wolbachia, you know, carrying mosquitoes interbreed with the general population and it may just keep spreading and spreading and spreading till they're all basically not able to carry the virus anymore. That would be amazing. That's right. I mean, this was um, over three years over three seasons so um yeah one important thing to note here is that we don't have the full research paper it hasn't been published yet so all this initial information's come out through a nature news article but certainly when all the information is out there and we know exactly what's happening we can sort of um, compare across years as well like has the reduction in in dengue fever cases increased over the last four years or has it stayed the same what's the sort of spread um so i'll definitely be watching this one keenly and yeah i mean i guess does it mean dengue fever could be thing of the past soon the world mosquito program are scaling up um so from humble beginnings in australia it will be looking to be rolled out to about half a billion people in the next 10 years which is very exciting But one thing I really wanted to highlight here and note is that I think it's a really excellent and timely example, not only of, you know, Australian ingenuity and innovation, um, but also the success of this of this whole project um, has rested on the fact that it is a truly international collaboration. I think in the context of, you know, beating the other viruses in our lives, such as COVID-19 causing virus with the current and the future research, an international and collaborative approach is certainly something we can all take a lesson from. that's all we have time for on another episode of locked in science locked in science is recorded uh, on the lands of the Kulin nation normally recorded in the studios of 3cr in melbourne with the support of the community radio foundation and broadcast across australia on the community radio network if you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, we are Lost in Science 1, or on Facebook, where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. 
Or uh, if you would prefer, just tune in on your radio or on your podcast or wherever you hear us when Stu, Claire and Chris once again get locked in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.